I usually attend the evening service and so it's pretty uh, special to be here with you guys this morning. Um, yeah, so thank you for having me. Uh, we've got a really big word ahead of us and I'm just really humbled that we can open it together and be assured of the hope that we are all offered in Jesus together. So back in March, you guys began to work your way through Romans, a letter that Paul wrote to the Christian churches in Rome. Now, Paul was not a man of few words, and nor did he mince them. He was incredibly intense. Um, And the themes that he has laid down so far are that all people are sinners, that the law cannot address that, and that only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are we saved. Now, I understand you guys took a little bit of a break uh, over Easter, and this is the first week back. So just to recap, in the previous chapter, Paul was driving home the point that nothing other than faith in Jesus makes us righteous in God's sight. Mark preached a cracker on it. He even did like a little rendition of Father Abraham. I don't know if that's a selling point or not, but um, if you didn't get the chance to hear it, then I'd encourage you to go back and have a look at the podcast later. This morning we pick up at the beginning of chapter 5 and we're going to work our way through verses 1 to 11. What we're going to find is that because faith in Jesus has saved us, we now stand in the undeserved love and favour of God. We have cause for unshakable hope because we belong to a good father who not only saves us but holds us dear to him. And this life is going to hurt, there's no doubt about that. We've seen that this week with all the stuff that goes on in our world. But God graciously will use it all to complete the good work in us that he has promised to. And when it's finished, we're going to pass over into eternal glory. It's an amazing message of purpose in pain and certain hope for those that are in Christ. So before we get stuck in, I'm just going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, you say that when two or more are gathered in your name, that you're there as well. And so I just thank you that you are here this morning with us. I just pray that um, this would be your word and your message, not mine, Lord, um, and that you would just really prepare our hearts to receive it, God. Amen. All right, we've got some serious ground to cover, so let's get into it. The words are going to be on the screen, and I'm in the ESV or English Standard Version this morning, but um, feel free to take out your Bibles and follow along. So, Paul opens with this. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So first up, we are reminded that through faith in Jesus and his defeat of sin and death on the cross, we have peace with God. We've been made right in his sight, we've been declared blameless. The price for our freedom has been paid in full and God's justice towards us is eternally satisfied in Jesus' work on the cross. We're saved. Amen? But note, what Paul doesn't say is that we have peace with the devil or this world or flesh or sin or any of the rest of it. He says we have peace with God. And to me, that lays the foundation for the reminder that's going to follow that life is not going to be painless, that there will still be battles to fight, but it's no longer against God that we fight them. Rather, we're on his side and we get to ask him to fight them on our behalf. 
Paul then goes on to say that we stand in grace, that through our faith in Jesus, we have not only been made right, but we've actually been brought into a place of undeserved privilege where we stand firm, safe and secure. And we can confidently look to the future with hope, knowing that we will share in God's eternal glory because we are his sons and daughters. So it is through faith that we are saved, it is by grace that we are held, and it is in love that we know hope. What I've noticed um, of Paul's writings is that he often kind of uses bookends, and I think um, it's actually uh, the same with this passage. We're about to dive into a word about suffering, but before we do, he sets us up to grasp the gospel. Because it's that, it's Jesus and his death and his resurrection that are the bedrock of our hope. And if we don't grasp that, when we suffer, we're heaps more likely to run away from God rather than to him. We might even see him as punitive or disengaged or cruel. And we forget that he loves us so much that he sent his only son to save us and bring us into eternal relationship with him. Well, the other thing we might do is try and endure it in our own strength. And then we set ourselves up either to just to fail spectacularly or be self-righteous and proud. But when we anchor ourselves in the grace of the gospel, the game changes. Come what may on this earth, we can be joyful and hopeful because of who God is, what he's done for us, and what he promises is yet to come. And they're all ideas that are unpacked in the verses that we're going to follow. All right, so he doesn't, he's not blessed with small talk. That's not an um, easy beginning. But with peace and grace through faith as the foundation... Paul then hits us with some pretty big stuff to wrestle with. He says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I don't need to point out the inevitable nature of suffering to this room. We don't have to live very long in this world to figure out that it is complex and that it involves as much pain as it does joy. Maybe you're journeying sickness or infertility or mental health issues, loneliness. Maybe like me, you're walking through a season of grief. But if what Paul says here is true, then suffering doesn't contradict the favour that we have in Christ. In fact, what is indicated here is that God can use the hard stuff to bring us even greater blessing. And I want to be really careful here because when you're in that acute state of ache, it can be really difficult to reconcile this idea to your experience. And I actually really get that. Um, Some of you would have known my mum, Mary Eden. She went to this church many years ago. Uh, For those of you who didn't, she journeyed through cancer on and off for 15 years and she finally passed over into glory in June last year. And it has taken me some time to be able to sit in the tension that exists between, between being deeply sad that she's gone and deeply grateful that God in his graciousness used that experience to transform my heart. It's a really complex place to be in. But I do wholeheartedly believe that whilst God weeps with us, he can use that pain for his glory and for our good. Tim Keller, um, who I quote a bit because I'm a massive fangirl, um, he puts it like this. 
Suffering is meaningful. There is purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. Before she died, um, my mum and I started transcribing her diaries. She had about 750,000 of them. Um, And the entry from the time of her first cancer diagnosis was pretty profound, I thought. She wrote, Cancer? Great. I don't know that I would have chosen this as a ministry. Still, it's a chapter of my life that the Lord has allowed, and so I'm going to be okay with it. I already really am. And that is precisely how she viewed that cruel disease right to the end, an opportunity to honour and glorify the God that sustained her through it. Even in her final day, she was singing songs of praise from her bed and she was declaring that she wouldn't change one moment of the journey that brought her so close to him. Not one moment. And I remember during one of our sleepovers near the end of her life and she woke up about four or five o'clock in the morning and I am not a morning person, right? Like, it's two coffees and 10am before I'm good for anything much. Um, so after I gave her some pain relief, I sort of settled her down and I gently suggested, let's go back to sleep. And she looked at me as though I'd gone insane. And she said, sleep? I'm too excited to sleep. I want to rejoice. And I gave her a smile like, yeah, cute, maybe later. <laughs> um, but she just stared back at me with this intensity. And I was like, wow, okay, now we're doing this. <laughs> All right. And so I put on some music and I tried to sing along with her. But honestly, I was just so deeply moved listening to her because she meant it. She meant every word. Um, And not because she liked pain or or misery. She wasn't a martyr. But because mum understood uh, what these verses teach us about the trials of life producing things that we can be thankful for. But before we unpack them, I actually think there's an important disclaimer to make here. Suffering can produce all these things, but it doesn't necessarily We don't have to look very far within ourselves to know that suffering can easily birth uh, anger, bitterness, resentment, even hatred. It's only because of the grace of God that Paul opened with, his first bookend, that we can face it differently. It's only because of the spirit inside of us that we can bear good fruit, even in harsh conditions. Charles Spurgeon puts it like this. Tribulation worketh patience, says the apostle. Naturally, it is not so. Tribulation worketh impatience, and impatience misses the fruit of experience and sours into hopelessness. Ask many who have buried a dear child, or have lost their wealth, or have suffered pain of body, and they will tell you that the natural result of affliction is to produce irritation against providence, rebellion against God, questioning, unbelief, petulance, all sorts of evils. But what a wonderful alteration takes place when the heart is renewed by the Holy Spirit. And it's so true. The ability to face suffering rightly and hold fast when times times are tough is purely a God-given grace. And it requires the outworking of the Spirit in our lives. About two years before the end of mum's life, her physical stamina really started to deteriorate. And so my dad and me and my very beautiful sister-in-law sitting over there, all rearranged our lives to try and more formally provide care for her. And it was really, really hard. Um, There were all kinds of grief and loss in store that I could not have imagined. Um, What it was like to watch her suffer like that, what it was like to watch my dad 
um, have, know that kind of sorrow um, and sacrificing parts of life to try and care for her and support him. And I was not in a spiritually strong place at the um, time. You know, I'd had the foundation of faith laid as a child, but I largely did my own thing. I was an idiot. Um, and I didn't face it rightly. My brain just felt soaked by the sadness of it all. I was frustrated. I was impatient. I was even self-pitying at times. And I remember one particularly difficult morning. Um, Mum was in a lot of pain and nothing could settle her. And after I'd tried a bunch of different stuff with no success, I hopped in the car to go to the chemist to get some more painkillers. And I just bawled the whole way to Stirling. I was so overwhelmed with frustration that we all had to go through what felt like such senseless agony. And I tried to pray and I remember I just shook the steering wheel. I was so annoyed. Um, and I said, God, at least do something with this. Like, it's obviously not going away. So could you at least use it to teach me something? And I can only imagine in that moment, like he was tender, but also like a raise of the eyebrows, like... <laughs> Amen, yes I can, sweet baby thing. <laughs> I've been waiting for you to say those words. I had no idea what he had already done in my heart um, to get me to that place. And certainly I could not have imagined what he planned to do when I leaned in. The time that followed wasn't practically any easier. In fact, um, in a lot of ways things only got harder, which would be to be expected. But there was an undeniable shift I started to see the glimpses of God's hand in the daily grind. Um, he'd enable me to do an impossible task and I'd be reminded of my need for him and how he's strong when we're weak. Or he'd help me to understand something new, like what it means to live between knowing what's possible with God and um, facing what's imminent on earth. I read once that God is doing a billion things in our life at any given moment and we can see like two or three of them which I believe to be true, but I think he strategically highlights that f those few so that we're reminded that he's there. Heightening our awareness of him is such a gracious gift, especially amidst pain. Of course, we're not going to um, ever see or know all that God does, but he does re reveal parts to us in his word. I have heard people say before that the question should not be why we suffer, but rather how we suffer. And I, and I understand the intent behind that statement, but I actually think it's of little comfort when you're hurting. One of the first questions we tend to ask is, why, God? You know, even Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was a cry of desperation and anguish. And so here in this passage, Paul gives us four pretty profound truths that illuminate purpose and hope in pain, and they give us cause to rejoice even in sadness. Firstly, suffering produces endurance. And endurance is one of those words that we tend to hear most often put with exercise. And I actually think that's a helpful illustration. To build physical endurance, we have to ride through the discomfort. Like your legs are going to burn, your arms are going to burn, you're going to feel like throwing up sometimes. But the end result is a greater fortitude. And similarly, there are hard things in life that bring us to our knees. But when we don't give up on our faith, when we continue to trust in God and patiently wait for his deliverance, our capacity to withstand the trials of life is developed. And not only that, but because the ability to do so comes from God, he is glorified. His strength is demonstrated in our weakness. 
Now, I know that's easy to say and terribly hard to do. As humans, I think we probably tend to endure hardship better when we know the end point. You know, when we're sick or we're going through a hard time at work, we have financial issues. What really tends to do us in is not knowing when the struggle is going to end. In the last few days of my mum's life, she fell unconscious and I don't think I'll ever be able to express in words how agonising that was to watch. Uh, my family and I didn't know when it would end and we all just anxiously hovered about, not daring to vocalise like the groaning of our soul that was just like, how long, God? But then my dad said something to us. He said, hey, I know it's hard, everyone. I don't want to see her like this either. But hold on, because I believe God still has stuff to teach us in these final days. And he was right. When I look back, God was gently sanding back our rough edges, teaching us what it means to be steady and faithful to him and to one another. To run from the hard stuff breeds timidity, but 2 Timothy 1 verse 4, Paul reminds us that God did not give us a spirit of timidity. Rather, he gave us one of power and of love and of self-discipline. And if we take God's hand and face the suffering in his strength, then it can transform us into a people who stand firm in his promises no matter what. We then read that endurance produces character. And when I first read that, I had to wrestle with it a little bit because I most often hear the word character used to describe individuality or diplomatically something that doesn't look all that good, but we're trying to find something nice to say about it. Um, so that didn't seem to fit. Uh, so I went back to the Greek um, and here's what I found. The Greek word that was used here is dokime and it actually means an approved tried character, a specimen of tried worth. And then I trawled through a few other translations and commentaries too and I found other words like testedness, authenticity and spiritual maturity. And so I put it all together and what I think Paul is getting at here is this, that when we persevere through suffering and we don't give up on our faith, we are proven authentic and genuine in our relationship with God. Until we face hardship, it can be hard to truly know the extent and the depth of our devotion to Jesus. We can know it in theory, of course, but it hasn't really been tested. The other day at work, I was listening to a colleague. She was talking about her new love interest. And she said, well, we had our first disagreement and we came out the other side. So I feel like it's totally for real, you know. He's the one. And I smiled to myself thinking, okay, maybe hit the brakes a tad. <laughs> um, but there is something to that. There is a certain sense of confirmation that is birthed when we remain steadfast. In suffering, the gold of our faith is put through the fire. And when it comes out refined rather than consumed... We can know that we have been tested deeply and found to be unwaveringly God's. If the purpose of this life was purely pleasure, then hardship would be the kind of devastating blow that would rob us of our belief in or our allegiance to God. But we know that's not the purpose of this life. There will be pleasure embedded for sure. There'll be seasons of laughter and dancing given for us to enjoy. But ultimately... The purpose of this life is to be transformed into the image of Christ. And so if that's the purpose, then this proven character thing is something that we can be thankful for even though we may grieve the cost of it. 
Spiritual maturity helps us to move from that childlike state of mistaking adversity for the absence or the ambivalence of God and into a rich lived experience of his goodness, even amidst pain. We reject the idea that easy somehow means he loves us and instead we adopt a respect for his pedagogy. We aren't always going to understand it or love it and there will always be things about the journey that we wish were different. But we can trust him because he's the same God that Paul opened with, the God that has saved us and lavished us with undeserved favour. And when we do... When we stand in the midst of pain and we say, God is still God, he is still good, and I trust him, then we bring him glory. Next, we read that character produces hope. And that makes a lot of sense. As we become more like Christ, we grow in eternal perspective. And that provides us with hope that no matter what, one day we are going to be in paradise with him and he is going to make all things right, every tear wiped away. I think one of the biggest lies Satan would have us believe is that there is nothing beyond the here and the now. He fools us into this kind of tunnel vision that magnifies our battle wounds and we forget we have a saviour who has already secured the victory of the war. When we're in Jesus, suffering might be a threat to our temporary happiness, but it is no threat to our eternal joy in God. We've just celebrated Easter And what a great reminder that is that no matter how dark a day we see, Jesus always wins. This life does not end in suffering or brokenness or even death for us, but rather in wholeness and glory and everlasting fellowship with God. In a letter to the church in Corinth, Paul penned these words, and they're some of my favourite in the Bible. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And on the proven character thing, I think perhaps sometimes those rough patches in life Um, actually help to give us victory over some of the little fears that we carry around. I work at a uni and um, as part of the induction process, they brief you on imposter syndrome, which, true to academics, they make it sound absurdly complex um, and it's all very unnecessary. But the gist of it is, is that it's actually really common to worry that deep down you're a fraud. Like, yeah, you might have a trillion letters after your name and and a, a door with your name on it, but you're still looking over your shoulder wondering when someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and call you out for being a fake adult. And as I was preparing for today, I was reminded of that because I actually think it can be the same with faith sometimes. You know, some people wonder if they're really saved. Others wonder if they're genuine. Some approach God with that spirit of orphanship rather than that spirit of sonship. But when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we fear no evil because God is with us, that builds confidence and hope in us as his children. With the steel of our faith tempered, we can know that we are genuinely his and therefore we are going to inherit the glory of our Father forever. Then the fourth truth we are given is that the hope we have because of our tested faith will not be disappointed 
we have every reason to hope for an eternity with the God whose love we have experienced in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And that perfect love is for all of us, all the time, no matter what's going on. But I do think sometimes it is uniquely illuminated in pain. When we're in the fire and all our other sources of comfort have burned away, I think sometimes we're, we're better able to appreciate the ferocity and the beauty of God's love in those moments. Tim Keller described being loved but not known as comforting but superficial, being known but not loved as our greatest fear, but being fully known and fully loved as the experience of a child of God. And he points out that it is such perfect love that fortifies us for any of the difficulties that this life has in store. It's what we need more than anything. And because Jesus gave us his spirit, we have it in abundance. I don't know if that's going to change. There we go. Um, in saying that, we don't necessarily spring out of bed every morning with a full awareness of God's love for us. We're humans, and so there's going to be days and even seasons where we feel distracted or disheartened in our faith. But Paul is all over it. Like any good teacher, he then connects the subjective experience of God's love with the objective details of it. He draws our attention to the depth and perfection of that love, appealing to our heads with reason for the times when our hearts hit struggle town. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, this would not be such a foreign concept to the parents in the room, I'm guessing. Making a sacrifice for someone that you find to be grateful is one thing. Hard at times, but potentially doable depending on the stakes we're talking. But to make a sacrifice for someone who doesn't want a bar of you at the time, that's a whole other level. And we're not talking like sitting up all night with a sick kid knowing that tomorrow they're probably going to throw spaghetti on you or ask you to stay in the car when you drop them at school to save embarrassment. This is God becoming man, taking on all the sin of the world and paying the price with his blood all for a people who continually deny, disobey and dishonour him. We can know how dearly our Father loves us because he sent his precious son to die for us while we were living in complete rebellion to him. The depth of his love is demonstrated for us in the degree of his sacrifice and how wholly undeserving we were to receive it. And because it's a free gift that we couldn't and didn't earn, we can't lose it either. God's love reflects his character, not ours. You know the grand gesture that we wait for in every romantic comedy ever? Usually there's a car chase or, you know, something like that. To the airport maybe. Um, well, this is it. This is the ultimate grand gesture. And it came when we were most unlovable. And I love the emphasis of the words at the right time too. Galatians 4 verse 4 says a similar thing. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. It might have seemed late to some, but Jesus' work on the cross was done at the perfect time in God's big plan. His timing was just right for us, and we can be assured that it will continue to be so. Blessings, breakthroughs, deliverance, 
growth. They don't always come when or even how we wish that they would, but they do come at times and in ways that are most glorifying to him and most beneficial to us. God is never late and we can trust his plan even when things look bleak because his father's heart is unchanging. Charles Spurgeon puts it like this. God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken, and when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. We won't always see or understand in this life, I don't think. We weren't meant to, because if we did, it wouldn't be faith. And it's rough, you know, I find grief comes and goes in really unpredictable waves and over Easter I just got well and truly dunked. It wasn't a great time. But I was reading through the wider letter of Romans for context over that weekend and my heart was really strengthened by these words from chapter 8 verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Reminded me that our vision is limited and half the time we don't even know what we most dearly need. But the Spirit does and he's standing in the gap for us. So if you're going through something, I just want to encourage you that God will fight for us. All we have to do is call on the Spirit and he will fill us with perfect love that steadies our feet breathes peace into our hearts and gives us cause for joy even in the midst of pain. And if you're not currently going through something, then I just want to encourage you that these are words that prepare us well for when we do. Suffering is warfare and having a sound understanding of the immeasurable love of God is our best defence. So with that, then, I'm good with technology, clearly. Um, Paul plants the other bookend to the passage, bringing us back to the gospel. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Justification is legal language, and so we are reminded that we have been made right with God through the blood of Jesus. But reconciliation? Well, that's the language of friendship. And so we are reminded that because of Jesus, we now stand in a place of undeserved favour with a heavenly Father who loves us in immeasurable amounts. Our attention is drawn to both Jesus' death and life. And again, I think that's pretty significant. We don't just have a saviour who sacrificed himself on our behalf. That would be amazing enough in and of itself. But no, we actually have one who in the process defeated death. He rose again and he is literally seated at the right hand of God, praying for us all the time. And even in our most desperate moments of grief... Our greatest need is not that which we have lost, but it's him. And we have him. He's alive. In John chapter 15, with the story of Lazarus, Jesus looked Martha in the eye as she mourns for her brother. And what did he say? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
It wasn't that he was unmoved by her sorrow. You know, we later read that he was really troubled by it and he did act to alleviate it. But even the good gift of her brother's resurrection pales in comparison to the ultimate gift of Jesus' resurrection. Our Saviour lives. And when we are sure of who we are in him, what do we possibly have to fear about the details of this life? If God showed such dramatic love to us when we were his enemies then we can be confident that there is much more in store for his friends. Suffering can and will wound us. It might even leave a scar. But as Paul writes later in chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm going to ask the band to come up now. Um, And as they do, I just want to leave you with a final thought. When it comes to some things in life, I think you earn the right to speak with authority on them, and suffering is definitely one of those. Paul suffered greatly in his life and his ministry. We know that. And he speaks to us of a God who humbled himself to take on the form of man. Jesus experienced a loneliness and an injustice and a torture far greater than any human before him or after him. I visited Israel late last year and in the Garden of Gethsemane there was this little um, plaque and I read these words. Jesus, in deepest night and agony, you spoke words of trust and surrender to God the Father in Gethsemane. In love and gratitude, I want to say to you in times of fear and distress, my Father, I may not understand you, but I trust you. I was so deeply moved by that reminder that God has gone before us in all things Jesus leads by example and he stands in solidarity with us when it hurts. Tim Keller put it like this. He plunged himself into our furnace so that when we find ourselves in the fire, we can turn to him and know that we will not be consumed but made into a people great and beautiful. Great and beautiful, more than conquerors. The Japanese um, have an art of repairing pottery Um, with gold or silver to reconcile the pieces that have been cracked or broken. It's called kinsukoroi, and it's based on the understanding that that piece is more beautiful for having been broken. And if we face it rightly, this passage tells us that suffering can make us more beautiful too. We can bear the gold and silver cracks of endurance and character and hope, all of which point to our great God who enables us to bear such fruit. Because when Jesus died and rose again, he not only saved us, but he gave us his spirit. And therefore we can stand firm in the perfect love 
and the enduring promises of God. It won't always be easy, but we can be assured that it will be good and we will live to rejoice in the glory of God forever. We're going to move into a time of worship now, but I'm just going to pray for us first. So if you want to bow your heads. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app. 